0: What's up mortals? This is Mortality Minded, where we explore life, death, and whatever's next through culture, science, personal growth, and more. I'm your host, Thomas Gaudio. Today I'm speaking with writer and podcaster Jules Kuchera for my mortal chat series of wide-ranging conversations with people of all stripes about mortality and everything that follows from it. Jewel is the author of a memoir called Sweet Baby Lover, a blogger at JewelCuchera.com, and the creator and host of the new podcast, Hard Times and Hope. We met in a workshop that helped both of us recently launch our podcasts. It was during the workshop that I first learned about the death of her partner, Trent, at the age of just 46 in 2008. Trent's unexpected death led to Jewel starting her blog as a way to process his passing and her grief, which she eventually turned into her memoir. Jewel and I talked about many things, including her shock at coming home from work one day to find Trent's motionless body outside their garage, her efforts to revive him, the ways in which her grief has changed over the years, how childhood trauma and thoughts of suicide shaped both her life and Trent's, and why pasta and sushi are actually great breakfast foods. Afterward, I'll share my daily mantras with you as usual, so stick around for a quick dose of mortality-minded motivation. All right, that's it for now. See you on the other side. At some point in the workshop, when you first brought up um, Trent, Mm -hmm. your partner who died, Mm -hmm yeah and i took note of that when you mentioned it in the workshop and i thought huh that's interesting and you know it's so so funny how we all have most of us have these stories these people in our lives who've left us and then when we connected i thought you know i want to talk to you about trent because it seemed he seemed to be such a big part of your life and then when i started you know in preparation for this conversation i was reading your blog and checked out your book so i'll set it up a little bit and then i'd love for you to talk about him so he died unexpectedly at 46 and clearly it just had a significant impact on you right it prompted you to start your blog back in 2009 as a way to express your grief uh and also prompted you to write a memoir called sweet baby lover a true story of love death and hope Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I would just love for you to tell me about him and you know, who he was and what your relationship with him was like and, and how he died.
1: Legally, he was my partner. But as I say to people, he, I was more married to him than I was to my first husband. Hmm. We had exchanged vows in front of a person that we respected. He and I both wore wedding rings. We just didn't want to bother with the legality of it. We just—that just That just wasn't where our head was at. We started dating in 2003, and then we moved in together in 2005, yeah, five. I sold my house in Chicago. He sold his house in, in uh, Battle Creek, Michigan, and we moved to Nuego, Michigan. Hmm. We lived on 20 acres in the woods <laughs> in a town of 1,400 people. It was, um, it was probably the only place the two of us could both live because he couldn't live in a city and I couldn't live in Battle Creek. And then uh, in two thousand, his daughter came to live with us in two thousand and seven, and into eight. Mm-hmm. And then I had my own independent consulting business at the time because if you live in the boonies, you can't. There's not a lot of jobs there, mm-hmm. and, and all my clients were back in Chicago, so I'd go into the Chicago all the time. It's about a four and a half hour drive. And what happened was I had gone into Chicago normally when I'm there. I'm there for several days and I leave at like five o'clock on the last day. But this meeting ended early and I left at like two in the afternoon. Mm
0: -hmm. I called
1: him from Grand Rapids and uh, we talked on the phone and he just didn't sound like him. Something didn't sound right. And he said, let's, we'll talk when you get here. And I said, okay. And then when I pulled into the driveway, the neighbor boy, uh, Justin came running up to my Jeep and he goes, Trent's down and he's blue. So I went running over to Trent and he was, he was um, right outside the, we had a detached garage and he was outside of that. And he was, uh, he was indeed blue, but it was so weird. It was just his head that was blue. I want to stop for a minute. I need some water. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Take your time. Yeah. Yeah. So I looked at him and I thought, if you were up on the roof and you fell off and broke your neck, I'm going to be really mad at you. But (laughs) just because it was just the oddest robin's egg blue color. Anyway, so I got on the ground and I listened for, felt for the pulse. I couldn't feel any pulse, couldn't feel any air. So I started doing CPR. I had learned that um, job I had. And, uh, oh, it just seemed to, Justin was calling the, 911 and the ambulance and because we live so far back in the woods, you could hear the ambulance coming down our road and they'd be almost to our house and then they turn around and go away. They were thinking they were on the wrong road. Oh no. And I and I said, Justin, you gotta get out there and flag them down because so anyway, Justin mm-hmm. got them to come and the ambulance people came and they took over for CPR for me. And then um they had this little yellow box. That they hooked up to him. I guess it's like a portable EKG or something, but it spoke, it spoke audibly and it said, you know, it took his vitals or his pulse or something, and it, or whatever it was measuring, and it said, shock indicated, and they shocked him. And the machine did some more things and some beeps, and then it said, shock indicated, and they shocked him again. And then the machine did some more things, and then it said, shock not indicated. Mm-hmm. And when it said that, I went down on the ground I couldn't stand up anymore and um, so you could say I was sort of like fainting I guess but I was my eyes were open I was still awake but I just couldn't stand because I knew what shock not indicated meant he was he was dead and um, the main person the main ER, EMT came over and she I still remember how her hair was kind of blowing in the wind and she tucked a she's a hair behind her ear. And she said, well, I have something to tell you, but I can wait till you're feeling better. And I said, oh, don't wait. <laughs> because if you wait till I'm feeling better, I could just go down again. Mm-hmm. I am in the perfect place for you to tell me. Mm-hmm. And she said, I'm sorry, he's passed. And so what happened was I knew about death from my college roommate. And I thought, this is going to be the last time I'm with him. So I just curled up next to him as if we were in bed. And I just stayed there until I thought, somebody's going to come, and they're going to take him away. But until they do, I'm just going to stay here. And there was a weird moment when the blue from his face, his face looked pink again. And I thought, oh, he's coming back to life. Such an illogical thought. But Mm -hmm. of course it wasn't. It was the blood leaving his face and pooling in the back of his head. Mm -hmm. And the the medical examiner came. I don't even remember the EMTs leaving. But, um, or Justin, what happened with Justin? (laughs) Uh, But apparently his mother came over and they were standing off in the distance, but Mm -hmm. the medical examiner came and he said, because it was an unwitnessed death, nobody saw him fall. Uh, When Justin found him, he was already down. They had to do an autopsy. And I was glad because I wanted to know what happened to him. Mm -hmm. Um, And they said I had no legal rights because we weren't legally married.
2: Mm -hmm. And,
1: um, and I, they said um, his daughter wasn't 18 yet. It would normally be, if we had been married, I could have authorized the op- autopsy, but I couldn't. His daughter was only 15, so she couldn't authorize it. So the legal authorization was with his parents. And I thought, oh, great. <laughs> mm-hmm. <clears throat> the father who beat him and the mother who treated him worse. <laughs> um, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So I just thought, oh, I hope they authorized this. And they did. So what happened, uh, they did the they did the uh, autopsy and then they called me and it was like, I think it was nighttime. And I remember thinking I didn't expect them to call at night, but the medical examiner said, there's a lot of times we'll do an autopsy or not a lot. There are times we do an autopsy and we just can't tell. We don't know. Mm -hmm. We don't know what it was. (laughs) He goes, he goes, but this wasn't one of those times. It was very clear. And they said, what happened was he had a defect in his heart (laughs) and the heart the aorta literally broke apart. And then what happened is the heart's trying to pump, but because the pump is broken, the blood is going out into the pericardium that surrounds the heart. And then it presses the heart and the heart can't beat which, and he wanted me to understand that because he said CPR couldn't have helped him because Mm -hmm. the pump is broken. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't have mattered if he had fallen over in an ER room, nobody could have saved him. Mm -hmm. And that was helpful for me to know. It was also helpful for Justin to know because I didn't know this, but Justin had also started CPR before I got there. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. Um, So that was how he died. And then the other interesting thing that happened was at like 1130 at night, and I was just sitting at the dining room table, and the phone rang, and it it was the, um, I don't know what it's called, but it's the office that distributes body parts, like, you know, um, don- donor organs and things, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so I still remember. The woman said, "Is this a good time to talk?" And I looked at my watch and I saw that it was eleven thirty, and I said, "Yes," because <laughs> I was just sitting there. And uh, she asked me some questions, and at one point she asked if he'd ever traveled internationally, and I just started crying because he had not, and he wanted to. Mm. And she sat there and waited me out. She didn't say anything. She didn't say, there, there, that's all right. And I made a mental note that if I'm ever with anybody in grief and they start crying, the best thing for me to do is stay there and be quiet. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that was that was him passing. That was how he left. Oh, I did leave out one part, mm-hmm. which was, this is also, I think, important for mortality-minded there was a point, so we had this dog. His name was Nemo. He was a ninety-pound oh. dog, big shaggy thing.
0: It's a great name.
1: Yeah. So when I came up upon Trent, he's lying there with the blue head, and Nemo, our dog, is just sitting right there by beside him, not and just sitting there. And then I start CPR and all that. Nemo's just sitting there. Then the EMTs come, and I step back. I'm still there, but I'm still there, and I'm talking to Trent. I talked to him a lot while he was. Well, I had the sense that he was there because hmm. I was looking at him. Because I'd be breathing into him, and then I talked to him, and mm-hmm. occasionally I would scream instead because whatever. But mm-hmm. I said to him because one of the things he always said to me, Jenna is his daughter. She was 15. Um, he, he he could he what he wanted more than anything was to have both of us all three of us living together. And he would always say, how come I can't have you both? It's like I'd be with him and then she'd be with him. And, and uh, she had just left. She'd live with us for about six months and then she'd left. And I said to him, I said, Trent, you say, how come I can't have you both? But this, if you go, you can watch over us both. You can have us both. I said that to him. And I also said, if you come back, you come back all the way because I can't take care of you in a bed. I just can't. He was a big guy. Yeah. Um, but I had the sense that he was there. I, I don't know how to describe it. Mm-hmm. And then what happened was at one point, Nemo, the dog, grabbed one of the emergency people's bags of things and took it away. And the EMT Mm. said, get that dog out of here. And so I I get up and I start running after Nemo and I'm thinking, how am I ever going to catch Nemo? I've never been able to catch him in my life, but he just stopped. And so I walked him into the house, put him in the house, brought the bag thing back for the emergency guy. And when I looked at Trent, I looked down and I said, oh, he's gone. Mm. And the emergency person said, oh, don't say that, ma'am. It's too soon. But I could tell he wasn't there anymore. And actually, I think he poked the dog to make me leave so that he could leave. That's what. <sighs> that's, <laughs>
0: that's interesting.
1: Yeah. Anyway, so that's the, That's his departure.
0: When you say poke the dog, you mean metaphysically?
1: Yeah, metaphysically. Why would a dog that's been sitting there without moving through so much commotion, I mean, it's probably half hour, I don't know how long, suddenly grab, grab something and go running away. Hmm. Yeah, I just, yeah. And when I put him in the house, Justin told me later, he just stayed at the window and watched everything happen. And the dog did not eat for three days. Oh, wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, There are stories of yeah, pets being very sensitive to that. Yeah, being Mm -hmm. very despondent afterwards. I've heard that before, for sure.
1: Can I tell you something cool about Nemo? Yeah. So what happened? Oh, this was about a week before Trent died. Uh, He said, when we don't, he's looking out the, we're in our bedroom, he's standing up, I'm in bed, he's looking out the window, and he goes, when we, when we don't live together anymore, and you go back to Chicago, you can't take Nemo to the city. He can't live with you in the city. Hmm. And I said, what are you talking about? That dog's going to be long dead before we don't live together anymore. He goes, promise me. Hmm. I, I, so I promised him in a really snotty voice, because I said, this is stupid. And he promised I would date, you know, that's what I did. <laughs> And so, after he died, I looked at Nemo and I went, "Okay, Trent's last wishes." And my friend Debbie had uh, her nephew was looking for a dog, but they wanted they didn't want to get a puppy because they didn't want to have to train it, but it had to be one that was sort of hypoallergenic because his wife had allergies, and Nemo that's why we had Nemo. so they took Nemo huh. And the interesting story about Nemo is one of um the husband's friends came over. He just lost. I can't remember if it was his mother or his his father, but somebody important to him had just died. And he said, just go lay on the couch. You know, we'll we'll have dinner ready in a while. Just go lay on the couch. And so the friend laid on the couch and then Nemo came over, got on top of him on the couch and laid on him.
0: Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, Nemo. Yeah. No, he's attuned, it seems. Yes,
1: he's attuned. Yeah. He used to come and sit next, like after Trent died, sometimes I'd just sit on the floor and he'd come over and sit by me and he'd, it sounds weird, but he'd hold my hand. He'd put his paw in my hand. I don't know any other dog that does that.
0: <laughs> it's something he hadn't done before, pre- previous to that.
1: Um, He had. It was something he'd done with, Trent had done with him. Yeah.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But it was, it was... It was initiated normally it was initiated by me or Trent but this was him initiating it that was something he hadn't done before.
0: Right. Yeah, it seems like they do have some understanding of of the, the death of their human. Yeah. and people who are left behind of helping them or you know yeah. being there for them. So that's I'm glad you had Nemo for for a while.
1: <laughs> me too. Yeah, I had him for a few months.
0: It's nice. So I would love to talk about, talk about how you experienced your grief and maybe you're still grieving right now because grief is, there's no, there are no rules. It can last for the rest of your life. It can change and mutate over time. Uh, So I'm not saying, not to say that you, you you're done grieving. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't, but in that immediate aftermath, what was that grief? What was that grief like for you?
1: One of the worst moments of my life was the next morning when I woke up and I was so glad that I was awake because I had been having an awful dream. And then I realized it wasn't a dream. Mm -hmm. And it was so, there was such a physical feeling. It was like my stomach was being pulled out my body, out my back. It was just the weirdest feeling of collapse. And I grieved for a long time. Um, Well, there's, somebody said to me, it sounds like you were in a fugue state for a few days there because I was just sitting at my, (laughs) if you're sitting, if you're, sitting at your dining room table and somebody calls you at eleven thirty and it's like sure yeah, I'll talk. Um there was that. There was I'm pretty good with money management. I mean checking account I do all that well. And I went to put gas in my car and the uh, um the gas machine declined my card and I went, oh huh, I must be overdrawn. So you think, oh, that's pretty smart to figure that out. But <laughs> here's here's where I show how far gone I was. I gathered up all my receipts of things I had bought in the last month or whatever it was. And I took them to the bank. And because this is a small town, <laughs> everybody knows everybody. Mm-hmm. And I think her name was, uh, I don't know what, you could say Kathy. So mm. I, I I go, Kathy, I think I'm overdrawn. She goes, yes, you are. <laughs> and I said, but here, I have this. And I gave her this paper bag full of receipts. And she goes, what, what is this? I said, these are all the things I've paid money for. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so thankful for her because what she said next was, this is good. Do you have any checks? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, I do for my clients. And she goes, go get those. <laughs> so I, and I came in with like five. I you know, drove home, came back with like five checks. You know. I said, here yeah. we go. And, um, mm-hmm. but then, but then when I got home, I went, oh, wow, I really had that wrong. <laughs> you know. The, <laughs> and, um, the other thing that was strange was I said, I, I cause I, re- when I realized at the bank that I was screwing up, I said, oh, I'm sorry. I, it's just that she goes, Joel, we know what happened. I said, you know, and she goes, mm. everybody knows. Oh, wow. And that's cause it's 1400 people. Right. Um,
0: Definitely. Sounds nice in that moment to have that. I don't know that that kind of community.
1: It was nice. In Chicago, if a bank teller had called me by my name, I would have been freaked out. Yeah, <laughs> but right. but that's, that, how, that's
0: what I was thinking here in New York City is like, that's so bizarre, but it's so, yeah. I could see in that in, in that scenario being very comforting, yeah.
1: It was very comforting. There the there was a lot of nice things that happened because one is I needed to have my roof snow shoveled off and Justin would do it. And it was good to pay Justin because they needed the money, but I didn't have a shovel. And he goes, oh, ask your neighbor. And I said, well, he goes, he knows what happened. <laughs> so I was like, he'll be fine. So he got the shovel there. The other neighbor, a couple streets over, the the uh, county didn't plow the last part of the road to our house. And so he would come over and plow it. And it was just, it was really nice. But I grieved for a long time, I think at least seven years. And I'm not kidding. Mm-hmm. I, um, mm-hmm. and part of it was, some of it was wallowing because I had this kind of backwards view that if I feel bad, that means he must have really loved me or I must have really loved him. We must have really loved each other. Mm -hmm. And then at some point I realized I don't have to feel badly to prove our love. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So that helped. But um, I went on a date. It was probably, I don't know, three, maybe three, four years after he died. It It was one of those, you know, online dating things. And it was our second date and the guy held my hand and I, Freaked out, and I went, "Oh man, I'm not ready for this. This Mm. is interesting. Mm. He's all he's doing is holding your hand." So I thought, "Well, I'll just step away from this for a while." So I've stepped away ever since, and I don't know what's going to happen, but I know I'm not grieving anymore. I'm, I'm sure of that. I, you know, if you ask me about it and I go into detail like we just did, I'll cry. But I don't have sad feelings. I feel like. I feel like he still watches over me. And I feel like it just was, it was, it was then and it's not now.
0: Well, I, I definitely don't want to make you cry. That's not my goal by any means. (laughs) but uh, you know, I was going through some of your blog posts and not too long ago, about December, 2019, actually. So I'm just plucking at something that you wrote here. You said when I was Freshly grieving Trent, I discovered that the sadness came in the spaces in between, not during the meeting, but during the walk down the corridor afterward. Not during the conference call, but after the call and before the next one. Not when I was checking out of my hotel room, but during the long drive back to Michigan.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, I just thought that was really well said and interesting because it's it is those you know quiet smaller moments when it Mm kind of hits you. And and I don't know what point in the grieving process that was. You said freshly grieving. I don't know if that was what you consider freshly, but
1: that was in the first year or especially the first few months. um, I would just fall apart in the car and it it always surprised me because I had been maybe running a project for my client and (laughs) doing fine. And then I'd get in the car and I would just cry. There was um couple things related to that one is I was working with a consultant his name was Ron and we had a pretty big project team 20 people or so and he was cracking jokes to me and I wasn't laughing and and then uh, I didn't realize I wasn't laughing and then one day he cracked a joke and I and I laughed and he said I have accomplished my goal and I said what <laughs> I said what was your goal he said to make you laugh and I said have I not been laughing and he said you have not laughed at a joke since January. <laughs> you know, like I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, we've been because we'd worked. I think it was March or something <laughs> and I finally laughed. Yeah. That was that was something. And then the other thing that was that was project was actually a gift because about know, so Trent died in September. Thank goodness I had I have this incorrect recollection that I kept working the rest of the year and no, no, no. but I I've gone back and checked my record since. <laughs> it's a good thing I it's a good thing I had made my nut already that year because I didn't essentially didn't work for the rest of the year. So yeah. it's turned October November. And then uh McDonald's was a big client of mine and they called and they said we have a project we'd like you to do. And we would never offer to, this to you before, but we think given your new circumstances, you might like this. We'd like you to come run a project here for six months. You'd need to be on site every day, every Monday through Friday. Uh, we'd put you in a hotel room and you'd be here for six months. And I said, yeah, that sounds good. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So so that's the project where I worked with Ron.
0: Get back in the saddle, so to speak.
1: Yeah. And it was just nice to be surrounded by people Mm -hmm. because the house at this point, there's no Trent, there's no Nemo. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was nice to be with people. So that was a gift, that project.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah.
1: Now, I'll tell you something funny about crying in the spaces in between. It was February, I think. I was coming back from one of my Monday through Fridays to Chicago. Mm-hmm. And when I, let's see, so I came back, I got to my house. We lived back in the woods and there'd been six feet of snow that December. There was still a lot of snow and I just couldn't bring myself to go in the house. I didn't want to go in an empty house. And I just walked around my car the snow and it's freezing cold. And then I finally said, Julie, you have to go inside or you're going to give yourself hypothermia. So I finally finally went inside. But then on my next week, on the Friday, I'm driving home and it's cold. I put the money, it was before the pass or I didn't have an pass yet, whatever. And I roll down the window and toss the money in the in the bucket mm-hmm. for the toll. And then my window won't go back up. And I'm <laughs> jiggling the little thing and it won't go. And it's it's like only thirty thirty-two something degrees outside, but when you're driving 60, oh, yeah. 70 miles, it's yeah. just that wind <laughs> comes in, it's freezing. I pull, I yeah. I I'm jiggling all the stuff. I pull over at some stop rest stop. I pull all my clothes out of my suitcase. I put them all on. I'm wearing like a sweater for a hat. I just like whatever. Hey. And I <laughs> I finally get home and I go running in the house. And uh, I don't think much of it. And then the next day, Justin comes over because he's doing some work for me. And uh, I said, just because Justin's pretty good with mechanical things. I said, Justin, would you take a look at the Jeep? I can't get the window to go up. So he goes out there. He comes back. He goes, windows up. What'd you do to it? He goes, I jiggled it. I, go, I jiggled it. <laughs> and then I thought, Trent, if you want somebody to get home and go inside, that's a pretty good trick right there. And I. He, he and I probably I only thought that because he'd done a few things that were electrically involved at that point. But uh, I'll tell That's you one. Yeah, here's the here's the most I could tell you. Many, many, many that involve electricity and weird things, hmm. um, including some that involve other people buying my house and commenting on electricity and weird things. Wow. Yeah. So I'm, it's not only me, but he, here's a perfect example. When I moved back to Chicago, I got a I was living in my condo in Villa Park, and there was a hall light on a three-way switch. So maybe that matters. I don't know. But it was June 3rd. And I sometimes I talk aloud to myself because that helps me remember things. I was like, oh, I got to call Jenna. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I said that, the hall light came on. Mm -hmm. And I said, I know that's you. And the hall light went off. And I said, I love you. And the hall light came back on again. Really? Yeah. Wow, yeah, <laughs> that
0: yeah is, that's intense, yeah, I think so. I wanted to go back. we were talking earlier regarding your blog because you started the blog as a way to help you grieve.
1: it wasn't even my idea, <laughs> so what happened was i would I was in uh, Seth Godin's tribes back in two thousand and eight. It was this uh-huh. online community that he had, and I got really enamored with the idea that the tools of production are, are in our hands. And I was in a, a mastermind group with two friends of mine who were also small business you know, consultants or entrepreneurs. And I told them, we were in one of our meetings, I said, I'm going to start a blog. And they said, cool, what's it going to be about? And I said, adult learning. <laughs> they said, no, it's not. What do you mean? They said, no, we want you to write about Trent. And then when you're done writing about Trent, you can write about adult learning. I think that was, uh, I have been accused of being a wuss, just having no backbone or mind of my own, according to an Amazon review. Because <laughs> I just did what my friend said. But I think they knew what would be good for me. And I've, I wasn't actually in a place where I felt all that capable of knowing what was good for me. So I started mm-hmm. blogging. I would do a, I did blog posts about Trent. I had a, I had a big I had a notebook that had post it notes with different different things that had happened, and I just would do a blog about each post it note, and then what happened is when I, and I said when I started I'll do this until I have nothing left to say, and then when I ran out of things to say, it didn't feel finished, so I took a couple weeks off. I went to the Smoky mountains. I'd never been there before. I rented a little cabin. This was so fun. It was like 400 square feet or 260. It was really small. And um, I took all the posts and I I laid it out chronologically. And then I realized there were some holes in it. So I filled the holes and then I turned it into the book, Sweet Baby Lover. Sweet Baby Lover was Trent's pet name for me. Sweet baby, sweet baby.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. Wow. So how was that experience of writing about Trent through your grief?
1: So writing the blog posts did help me process a lot of feelings. And I think it was a, in the beginning healthy. And then I think it went on too long and it was no longer healthy. Hmm. And I want to read you one of my blog posts, August 17th, 2010. So it's now three years almost after he's gone. I have been clinging to grief I have been clinging to grief in a perverse way of feeling better. If I hurt this much, I must have really loved him. If I hurt this much, he must have really loved me. What caused me to realize this was a blog post. The solution came from a movie. I would prefer to say I reached this enlightenment through meditation or contemplation of spiritual writings, but I take my lessons where they come. The idea that I have willingly been choosing to walk into grief came from one of Seth Godin's blog posts. This is the post. Occasionally, we encounter emotions at random. More often, we have no choice because there's something that needs to be done or an event that impinges itself on us. But most often, we seek emotions out, find refuge in them, just as we walk into the living room or the den. Stop for a second and reread that sentence because it's certainly controversial. I'm arguing that more often than not, we encounter fear or aggravation or delight because we seek it out, not because it's thrust on us. Mm-hmm. And then I, then my reaction to that post was, Seth was right. In this situation, in this life of mine, I was choosing to walk into the grief room. I was like a six-year-old who has lost a tooth and probes the hole with her tongue, in doing so expanding the pain, and because of the nature of the innervation of the tongue, expanding the apparent size of the hole, and when continuing to probe the hole in a protracted manner, expanding the time it takes to heal. Hmm. I have been that six-year-old, probing my wound, running my tongue over the edges of my grief. I have taken perverse pleasure from the pain of feeling the whole.
0: Hmm.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah, so that's when I realized, time to move on.
0: And yet it, it happened in exactly the way it had to happen and took as long as it had to take. I mean, you had to you had to go through that experience, it sounds like, in order to realize that it was no longer what you need to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it did, it took, it took a long time. I think death, it was weird for me when my father died because the only feeling I had was relief. Hmm. And it took me, there was not grief. Uh, There was, so there wasn't, so, uh, you know, maybe, you know, maybe three years is, I know it took longer than the three years was like the intense, (laughs) <laughs> the hard grief, but it still lingered for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, yeah, so it takes what it, I guess it takes what it takes, but I didn't want to prolong it any more than I already had.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because he died, you said, I I'm believe i get, getting these dates and math right, but correct me if, I, if I'm wrong here. So He died in September, 2008. He,
1: you know, when we, wait, yes, September, 2008 on the 17th, this means that, what happened with the financial meltdown the crisis mm-hmm. i didn't watch tv for like 3 weeks and then i turned it on i turned on the news and they were giving the you know where the s&p 500 was and i'm like these numbers are all wrong what what's going on here <laughs> i totally missed the crash
0: <laughs> yeah that's a hell of a thing to miss
1: <laughs> it was actually a good thing i guess in retrospect yeah
0: yeah so that was September 20, 2008, that what you just read from your book was a blog post in, in 2010 at some point. So August
1: 2010.
0: So that that's almost two years later that you had this first sort of like oh, dawning years. on, yeah, dawning or awareness. And then earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that you probably were grieving for about seven years. So I, I guess something like you mentioned that the hard grief or the acute grief was maybe more know, in the order of two or three years, but you still, there was this recognition of grieving for x amount of years after that, four, four or five years after that.
1: Yeah, there was there was something. I mean, the the fact that I had trouble holding hands with a man on a date was a sign that something wasn't right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I I heard a story. I don't know if it's true, but they said that widows the story was that widows uh, were supposed to wear black for a year. And Mm. then at the end of the year, they had a choice. They could either take off their black or they could keep it on. But if they kept it on, they had to keep it on for seven years. Uh Uh, And I think that's interesting. I think I was a seven-year widow. (laughs) I think I would have been the seven-year black one.
0: Yeah. Huh.
1: Yeah. I don't know, but yeah.
0: But it sounds like it changed for you, though.
1: Yeah. It shifted for me. And I can't point to... I I can point to this blog post and remember that that was an important. I gotta I gotta come out. It's time to start looking forward rather than looking back. Mm-hmm. But I can't remember when it stopped being so tender, where my heart stopped feeling so tender and such a loss. Because for me, I mean, when G- Ginger and her husband Dave and Trent and I had dinner, and it was a big deal for me because Trent was, uh, you know, Ginger was going to meet Trent, my boyfriend. And uh, Trent got up to use the restroom, and Ginger looked at me, and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, because Ginger's just, she's just straight up says the truth. And so she said, he adores you. (laughs) And to be adored and to be in love and loved, and uh, it was really, really nice. And so that's what made it especially hard when he left. But I also, I'm not sad that he left. I feel like he left at the perfect time.
0: Hmm. That must have taken you a while to get there.
1: Uh let me see how long that took. <laughs> we can actually date that one too. He left I, at the perfect time.
0: And I'm wondering what what how you got there.
1: Uh That took till
0: 2012.
1: Mhm. Yep. January of 2012. How I got there um I think it was just Thinking, reflecting, realizing, um, realizing that um, it was really hard for him in Nuego after his daughter left. It was hard for me. He was su- he was suicidal. He would sometimes go out into the woods with his gun. And, um, hmm. <laughs> yeah, he had P- PTSD. Uh, wow. Yeah, I am. Um, he told me about it when we were dating. Yeah, before we'd moved in together, he um, he used to get out of bed and sleep under the bed, mm-hmm. his head under the bed. And his shoulders would get stuck. I'm like, "What's he doing under the bed?" <laughs> and then he told me that he he slept in under the, under the bed as a kid because his dad couldn't punch him under the bed. His dad used to walk into his bedroom and punch him when he was sleeping.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah, that's Talk terrible. About- being vulnerable, you're asleep and your dad hits you, comes home and beats you. So yeah, he would he would uh be sleeping and he'd have nightmares and he'd start kicking and he'd kick me and anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was hard for him after Jenna left. Elaine, my therapist and I talked about it and she said he was hoping that when we had moved to Nuego his his depression would get better, but it but it didn't. And I just feel like we were together as long as we could be together, and the time was just he was just ready to go. I, and I remember a day when he was sitting at the kitchen table, and I said, "Tran, what do you want for Jenna?" And I said, and he said, um, "I want her to be strong. I want her to be able to take care of herself." And I said, "Well, baby, you can quit now because you got that." and um and after I said it, his shoulders just kind of relaxed, and I thought, "Oh no." Oh, no, because mm. she's, I think for a long time, she was helping him stay alive. Yeah. Which is a lot of pressure for a kid.
0: It is a lot of pressure for a kid. Yeah. But he, in the end, he, he, he didn't kill himself. He his No, he heart, didn't. Yeah.
1: His heart gave. And, oh, that's what the medical examiner said. He said, he after he did the detailed explanation, So, uh, and to make sure I understood, I said, you're telling me his heart, broke apart. And the man said, Yes, that's exactly what we say. He died of a broken heart. Went, oh, yeah, he did. Yeah,
0: yeah literally.
1: And, but his there were a couple of his friends that I called and I, you know, I called to tell him that Trent had died and they said, so he finally did it. And I said, No, he did not finally do it.
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there was this expectation in yeah. a way for the people who knew him. Yeah. I want to uh, switch to a related gear and talk about your perspective on what, if anything, comes after death. I'm going to take a little bit of a leap here and say that you believe in some form of afterlife and that you have some kind of communication with Trent to a certain degree.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I I believe that when our bodies die, our spirits don't or something doesn't. And the reason for that was eighth grade physics class. I wasn't raised with any religion. But I thought that if um, if people give off heat, that we have energy. But dead bodies don't give off heat. So where does the energy go? And energy can't be created or destroyed. So where does it go? That's mm-hmm. my whole basis for belief in our our energy, our, sp- our spirit, our soul, whatever you call it. I believe there's more. Do I know what that is? I have no clue. Mm-hmm. Um, do I do I talk to Trent sometimes? Yep. Do I have still have strange experiences? Yep. So here, here's one. It was in uh, coronavirus. Maybe it was April. I was feeling, I don't know, I was kind of down and I had pasta for breakfast. That's always a bad sign. And then I had pasta again for lunch. And then at dinner, I try making pasta for myself. Put the pot on the water and it starts boiling and then it Die. It's on a uh, one of those induction stovetops. Mm-hmm. The burner won't work anymore, so I slide the pot to another burner. Turn on, starts to boil, then it dies. I slide it to another burner. Turn on, starts, then it dies. And I said, "If this were my old house, I would think this is Trent." And then I went, "Oh, he's here too." <laughs>
0: <laughs> Trying to get you to like nudge, nudge, eat healthier for for dinner.
1: <laughs> yes, I think so. I really do. I'm serious. But all my burners work now.
0: <laughs> and did you have pasta that night for dinner?
1: Uh, I said, please just let me have pasta tonight. I promise I will. But um, I can't remember if I did or not. I remember saying that. I just want something to eat that's warm. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't remember if I did or not. Yeah.
0: Okay. That's. I mean, listen. There's nothing wrong with eating pasta around the clock. I mean, there are many people who who, <laughs> who would, who would be very much in sympathy with you. I mean, uh, I've eaten sushi for breakfast at, at certain times. And oh, lefto- that left- sounds fun. Leftover sushi.
1: <laughs> so, <It was>
0: leftover. <laughs> well, some people are more yeah mortified by that. I mean, because well, most sushi restaurants are not going to be open for breakfast necessarily. But if I get something to guess if I get a meal somewhere and I you know have a little bit of leftover. Yep. I put it in the fridge, and I don't want it to stay for too long, right? So I like I'll eat it the next day. And sometimes fish is a great um, a meal for breakfast. It's filling, like it's like high protein. Breakfast. Yeah, yeah. And I've had got...
1: tilapia for breakfast.
0: Oh, have you really? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. It's so good, and it's tasty. And you have a little, and with the rice, you have some, some of the carbs there. And so yeah, it's yeah, it's it's a nice actually a really nice filling healthy breakfast. <laughs>
1: That sounds kind of good, actually. I'll have to think about that.
0: Yeah. So your belief in how you described it, something there that you have some kind of belief in that somehow we persist persist after we die. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, labels are kind of irrelevant, but would you say then you're agnostic? Um, and then also how, if at all, does does that belief, does that affect the way you live your life in any way, would you say?
1: I don't know that I would say, doesn't agnostic not believe in God?
0: Agnostic generally means, to my understanding, someone who's uncertain or open that there may or may not be a God. An atheist would be someone who's... Oh, atheist
1: doesn't believe in God. Got it. That's right. Yeah. I would say I definitely believe in God or something. I'm not in a place where I would say there isn't one. And that's just because of microbiology class and just just i just can't believe it all just happened accidentally Mm -hmm. because it's just so amazing like even an orange is amazing Mm -hmm. so i believe there is something but i'm not able to say what and lately i've been i i've been uh reading some buddhist writings because Mm -hmm. i like the idea of non-duality and not us and them and me and you and uh, yeah, it just, it it has more relevance for the way I'm thinking than say Christianity did with, because uh, I used to be involved in a very evangelical church. We got to get everybody saved. I don't feel that way anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you, you would say there's nothing about that belief that necessarily Dictates the way you live your life on a day to day basis, or or is it something that's maybe something some more subconscious? Or
1: how do my beliefs affect my day to day living,
0: if at all? I mean, they may not.
1: I would say it's less about spirituality and more about. Am I proud of the woman I look at in the mirror? That's more what dictates it for me. Hmm. This is somebody. Am I somebody I want to come home to?
0: Mm-hmm. Am I somebody I want to come home to? I, I like that question a lot. Um, is, is, since you kind of went there when I when I asked about that, you know, the the ideas about afterlife and how it affects your day to day, is that related to how you perceive your own your own mortality anyway? And like in terms of you want to be okay with who you are, knowing that you will die at some point. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm making a stretch here, maybe, but I'm I'm just trying yeah. to make, see if it, make a connection point to what what we were just talking about.
1: I'm not sure the fact that I'm going to die is what's driving my behavior because I believe that we're all going to die.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it's not like it's not like thinking I've got to be good so that when I die, good things happen to me. I don't. I'm not motivated that way. It's more that I want to be good because it's better for me and others and the planet if I am good.
0: Mm-hmm. But in terms of like saying I want. Uh, how did you phrase that? I I, I want to, I want to be okay with, or I want to, how did you phrase, it? I want to be okay with the person I come home to?
1: I want, am I somebody I want to come home to?
0: Am I somebody I want to come home to? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, yeah. I think that's a powerful question to ask yourself.
1: Yeah. It probably, that probably comes from my father. So why not go there? Uh, my <laughs> father was, um, he had bipolar disorder, which we did not know. And uh, he self-medicated with alcohol, which we did know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, he would ask me on a regular basis, but never when anybody was around. It was always when it was just me. He'd, and he would not say it. He would yell it more than anything. It was, but the words were, what right do you have to take up space on the planet? How do you justify your existence? Actually started with the how do you justify your existence? How do you justify your existence? What right do you have to take up space on the planet? And
0: He would say you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, it actually led I mean, I'm smiling now because because I it it had a it had a harsh effect on me, or I should say. I took it in in a very harsh way and um
0: understandably.
1: Yeah, I think so, <laughs> but it led to depression. Uh because I couldn't I'd never had an answer for him and I thought if I can't answer him, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be on the planet. But what I realized in hindsight is his questioning me had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with him. Mm -hmm. It was a question he was asking himself. And so I don't believe he liked who he came home to when he came home. And, uh, Hmm. and I, I want to like the person I come home to.
0: Yeah. I, I think that's, yeah, I think there's, that's such a great, um, just insight in terms of understanding your father better and yourself and how you, you know, you want to be different, uh, than that. And, and you know, in, intuiting that maybe that's really where he was coming from. And and therefore something for me to be aware of and, and not replicate in any way.
1: Yeah. It, and it took me a long time to get there, mm-hmm. like until 20, 20- 15. (laughs) So that's a long time.
0: That is, but we are all working on, right? Understanding ourselves and sort of deprogramming ourselves from our younger younger days or understanding how that Mm -hmm. program is affecting us and how to change it. Yeah. So yeah, that's, at least you got there. That's the important thing.
1: (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah. At least I got there. And actually I'm kind of glad There's an advantage to having been there in terms of empathy. It's helped increase my empathy.
0: Yeah. For yourself, especially. Mm. Um, And I'm I'm wondering how this relates all relates to your own mortality. How do you see your own mortality? How does it make you feel to think about it? Or what feelings come up around it when you think about it?
1: Well, I would like to live forever, except I would not like to live forever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: Paradox of immortality. Yeah.
1: Yes, exactly. And Anne Rice's tortured vampires. Right. Yeah. So I expect to live a long time because the women in my family do. They usually live into their 90s. I expect to be or hope to be pretty healthy. Um, A little bit worried about Alzheimer's because my mom or a, you know, senior onset dementia, whatever, because worried about my mom starting to show some sing- symptoms. Mm-hmm. Her mother had it. I am um, really proud of myself for getting my affairs in order. M- many people are motivated um, to make their end of life, you know, finances and final wishes, whatever, mm-hmm. um, by, having kids and making sure things are set up for their kids. So I don't have kids. I'm not married. and But I have a will. I have a trust. I have uh, directives for, you know, advanced directives and (laughs) directives for after I'm dead. And uh, I'm glad about all that. Now, my potential problem is if I have the same problem my mom has, which is outliving the people that are... (laughs) Are named so. I have fallback plans for that, but I'm 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 proud about that. And uh, I don't want a funeral. I want people just to have spaghetti, (laughs) have a nice meal.
0: Yeah, it is some pasta, right? Pasta, pasta Pasta for breakfast.
1: Pasta for breakfast. Yeah, yeah.
0: (laughs) So that's to me the practical end of the the spectrum, which is important. And and, uh-huh. and very much very much should be discussed in and things like having a living will or or naming mm-hmm. someone as your healthcare proxy, all very important. Right. I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is more the feeling of your own mortality. Like how are you okay with the fact that you will die one day?
1: I don't know. And here's why I, I don't know. I, I I think I'm okay with it, but I don't know that I'm okay with it because what I've seen of older people is they wanted to stay. Oh, mm-hmm. well, let me give, let's so say, for example, my father, who was an interesting person, said one of his beliefs was nobody over 65 should receive health care for cancer or serious conditions because they're a drain on the economy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And um, no, so we should change the law if you're over 65, You don't get it. So, my dad turned 65 and gets cancer. (laughs) And he had it, he had several, a few bouts of it. And, and I, when he was 75, and I said, Hey, dad, what about the no, no treatment? He goes, Well, you know. (laughs) So, he had chemo, he had, he had several rounds of chemo and radiation, and, and, uh, you know, he did the whole gamut. So, that's why I say, I might think I'm okay with dying, but I might cling with every, you know, fingernails into the blackboard or into the dirt.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is one of those tricky things. It's even when you look at it and try to accept it, something you have to sort of constantly work at. I think.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I want to work at it. I just, (laughs) I don't. One of my mottos lately is, I don't want to make life harder than it already is. So I'm just, I just want to be. I, if I if I were truly at peace with the non-duality, I'd be there is no life, no death, right? Mm. Mm. So that's 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 uh, the, my preferred approach if I can
0: stick with it. Meaning that we are all energy in some way, or we uh, we there's no there, the, there's a, this illusion of the other outside of our of the things that are not ourselves.
1: We always were and we always will be right mm-hmm. right now I'm here in this body, but maybe there's something else after I and mean, there was something else before. Maybe I'm just a spark of light. I don't I have no idea.
0: Yeah. 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 And also the fact that you, we, I don't know, a little while ago, you said that you would want to be immortal, but also not want to be immortal. So I think that that speaks to that conflict we all, like many people have, I think that yeah, we, we like the idea of immortality, the concept of it, but the actual practical reality of it doesn't really work.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my mom is my mom's 90. And uh she said on her last two calls she, on both of them she said I don't want to be in this world anymore. Mm-hmm. And then she said my father lived in the days of horse and buggy. She said I was born before TV and now my mom doesn't own a computer, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> doesn't have a cell phone, you know, and and I just think the time, the change is, is hard for her.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's, that's the challenge of living a long time.
0: It is. And it's one thing, you know, as it stands now, even though we've, there are many people who live healthy until their eighties, nineties, even over a hundred. Um, I mean, I think it's, once you start getting into nineties and over a hundred, it gets more and more difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is this inevitable decline it seems with most people and is natural so if if we're talking about that then yeah if you were to live until let's say 200 or 300 or some extremely advanced <laughs> age and and it was most of that time was is you know Infirm, or that would
1: be awful. I mean, right,
0: it would be hell on earth. Right, so if yeah. you live to live to five hundred and you had four hundred and fifty great years, then that's a different story.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, you could have built a chapel. There was a woman in Minnesota when I lived there, and uh, she was—I think she was in her eighties. I'm not positive, but she went out canoeing on a lake one morning, mm-hmm. and a tree fell on her and killed her. And I thought, that's the way to go. <laughs> you
0: know, said, right,
1: right, yeah.
0: Sudden at the hand of nature
1: hand of nature and you're on a lake canoeing, you know, probably enjoying your morning.
0: (laughs) Never saw it coming. Right. Yeah. 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 I guess. Yeah. If we, if you had to pick away, right. Who wants to pick away, but if you had to pick away.
1: Yeah. I think quick is better than long and slow and painful.
0: Yeah. Um, I would agree with you on that. (laughs) (laughs) So in talking about, you know, at some point earlier, we kind of, alluded to this to to a certain degree Um, talking about your worthiness as a human being and wanting to be on you know be around this relates to something that I've I've spoken with a few people about in terms of suicide I think suicidal thoughts are way more common than people think or admit to Mm -hmm. I think most people I don't want to say everyone because not everyone but we I think most people do I've had them. A lot of people I've talked to have had them. Mm -hmm. And in a blog, actually a recent blog post, you, you um, wrote about this a bit. You said, if you don't mind me quoting you again, um, you said last Sunday, something scary happened to me that hasn't happened in a long time. I had the blue thought, what's the point of my life? And maybe I should just leave. it's a familiar thought from when I was a teenager, when it almost, when it came almost every day for more than a year. And the thought has revisited periodically throughout my life, but hasn't for maybe a decade. When it came back, grinning like an old friend, it frightened me. I have rules for myself that guide me when my emotions have bad plans. One of my rules is I cannot kill myself because if I do, then I will miss all the good things coming my way that I don't know about yet. What are your thoughts on, on suicide and, yeah, and, and having these sort of moments?
1: Well, suicide, I don't know. I I know it's becoming so prevalent. I mean, mental health issues are, and I don't know if it's because they're getting worse or we're just more learning more about them. But mm-hmm. uh, if you'd asked me when I was 13 if I was depressed, I would have said no, because I wouldn't have really known what you were talking about. But if you said, do you ever think about killing yourself? I would have said yeah. And if you asked me how often, I would have said pretty much every day. Hmm. Um, so... What happened, and I remember I, there were times I would lie on my bed on my back with my hands behind my back, uh, thinking that I can't hurt myself if I'm lying on my hands. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. But what happened was um, that a turning point for me was a Sunday morning. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning. I was in bed. I hadn't gotten out of bed. Couldn't think of a reason to get out of bed. And I kind of thought, maybe this is the day. Maybe, I, maybe today would be a good day to leave and i didn't i wasn't raised with any religion so i didn't pray or anything but i just kind of <laughs> spoke to the air is is this it should i should i go today and i heard singing and at first i thought i'm losing my mind and then i realized i'm not losing my mind it's springtime my window's open i'm hearing singing from the church my i lived in a suburb that was carved out of a an area and there was an old settlement with a Church in it, and I just got out of bed and walked to the church. I didn't go in the church because I thought if I do, I might break the spell. Um, but it was a it was United Baptist Church, an African Methodist Episcopal Church, A.M.E. Church, and the singing was just beautiful. Hmm. The church was also beautiful, very small, white clapper church, a few neat houses. Around it, but most of the community was exceedingly poor. Mm-hmm. Not n- the homes were, you know, close to not habitable. Um, and I just listened to the singing, and I thought, if the if the people in this church can find a reason to sing when they have so little, then maybe there's a reason for me to stay alive. And I just don't know what it is yet. Mm. So, that's when I made the rule for myself. I can't kill myself because I'll miss out on something I don't know what it is yet, and it wasn't like I had a big epiphany, and I was like, "Oh, depression went away. Mm-hmm. I would regularly go to the church and I stand outside and um I did go back as an adult and talk to the pastor and you know so and um they know what that, and I went attended a service, and they know what their church did for me as a child mm-hmm. but Yeah, and then I didn't even know about therapists or therapy or anything back then. I don't I don't think it was common. But in my when I went to my grad school program, (laughs) my it was in organization development and the professor, my major professor said if you're gonna do this work, you have to go through therapy because you're essentially doing therapy for organizations and you have to have your, your own stuff together. Hmm. So being the dutiful student, I went to his office, I said, okay, ready for therapy, who should I see? And so he recommended Mary Ursu, and I went to see Mary Ursu, and I met with her, and we had our meeting, and she asked me questions, and I said things. And at the end of it, I said, so, when do I need to come back? And I'm thinking it's like a dentist, right, every six months or something. And she says, how about Thursday? (laughs) Like. This is Tuesday, <laughs> right? And she said, "I think I think that would be good." And I said, <laughs> "Why?" And then she quoted two things that I had said that coming out of her mouth sounded absolutely not good. And so I went, "Yeah, okay." And so do you I went, "Remember some, what
0: they are? And would you mind sharing them?"
1: Um, I won't share them. Sure, I, I do mind sharing, yeah. um, but it. I saw her like twice a week for six months. And I remember leaving with like pounding headaches every time I Mm. learned to slam aspirin beforehand, but uh, it was a real turning point. And then, uh, and I've gone through therapy a few times in my life. And (laughs) one was, one was unsuccessful because I was being stubborn, but it was when I was first married and the therapist said, don't you find it interesting that your family your church, and now your marriage are all kind of replicas of one another. I went, no, <laughs> 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 I never went to see her again. Cause I knew she was saying the truth that I had recreated all that with my marriage. Uh, so anyway, but yeah, so uh, periodically it, it comes. And, uh, since I made that post, I've not had the blue thought again, uh, but I made you know I talk to my therapist, I make sure I'm getting exercise, eating well, mm-hmm. um, you know, doing reaching out to friends, doing what I need to do.
0: Yeah. That's great. Um I I think you, you know, I think you raise a question that many people it's it's common, it's very common for people to feel that way. You know, what's the what's the point? You know, what what's where's what's the meaning? What what is what's this all about? Mm-hmm. And you've had a certain experience. I don't know what exactly um, in terms of when you were younger, when you said you, you were not recognizing you were depressed, but recognizing that you wanted to end your life on a, most days, if not every day, mm-hmm. maybe related to your father mm-hmm. and his experience uh, with you. But I, I um I think that is, I think it is a question that we ask ourselves once we, at some point in our youth and then continue to ask ourselves and either you are, I don't think there are many people who, are, who can answer that question fully and clearly and definitively consistently all throughout their lives. Mm-hmm. I think this is something that we constantly have to ask ourselves and, and gut check ourselves with. And yeah, I mean, if, you know, especially if we don't think that it were, I don't know. It, I think that it, that question often is tied to religion. Mm-hmm. People who are religious can maybe answer that question in the context of their beliefs Mm-hmm. But uh or maybe maybe not, I'm not sure. I think I just have a sense that that works a little bit more clearly or definitively in that realm. But you know, I consider myself agnostic slash atheist. And, you know, so yeah, it's something that I, I have to ask myself and come up with my answers. And uh yeah, I just think it's 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 very common to the idea of what is what is meaning and how do we find it. And it all it all is very subjective.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've decided that I'm not going to ask myself that question anymore because it for me, it's a rabbit hole that makes me feel worse about myself. So what Hmm. I've decided is that the meaning of my life is the meaning I give it. My worth is equal to one worthiness unit, which everybody has. It's a really fun experiment to walk down a street and everybody you pass think one worthiness unit. Pass a pass a panhandler one worthiness unit. Pass a business person in their suit one worthiness unit. Uh, we're all one worthiness unit, and I've decided to leave the measure of my life up to somebody else.
0: Yeah, I think that's very important to figure out what you need and and how you want to approach that type of existential question. Yeah. That's something like in terms of the meaning, I could talk about that for hours. I think it's either there is objectively no meaning for any of us, which is kind of like a yeah, a, yeah a whole separate conversation, or that it's all subjective. We all have our own meaning, bring, bring our own meaning to the table, and we're all part of this bigger tapestry, right? I take some solace in that because I think if everything's objectively meaningless, then we're all equally meaningless. So I take some... <laughs> I take some kind of comfort in that.
1: <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. It's logical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah.
0: Who knows? Who knows?
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, hey, I'll let you go. It was great talking with you.
1: Great talking with you. Thank you so much. Have a good night.
0: You too. We'll talk soon.
1: Okay. Bye-bye. All right.
0: Bye-bye. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jules Kuchera. If you want to check out Jules' work, visit julecuchera.com, that's J-U-L-E-K-U-C-E-R-A.com, where you can find her blog, a link to her memoir, Sweet Baby Lover, and her podcast, Hard Times and Hope. You can also find Hard Times and Hope wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I'll link to all this information in the show notes. Now I want to take some time to share my daily mortality mantras with you. I developed the first one a few years ago. It goes like this. I will die, and I could become severely ill and or disabled. One or more of these state changes could happen or start happening right now, decades from now, or at any moment in between. So I will make the most of whatever time I have left while I'm still healthy and breathing. The second one is a saying in Italian from my grandmother, who died in 2019 at the age of 102. She would say it to me and other members of my family whenever we needed to hear it most. And it's something I repeated back to her over and over again, just a few hours before she died, as potential travel advice, just in case she was going somewhere. It goes like this. Ordina. Al tuo destino di essere bello e tale sarà. It means command your destiny to be beautiful and it will be. I say both of them to myself every day, usually after the roughly 30 to 60 second ice cold shower I take each morning, shortly after getting out of bed to help wake my groggy ass up and start the day off right. I hope these matches help you as much as they help me. All right, that's a wrap for now. Join me in exploring mortality and everything that follows from it by subscribing to Mortality Minded wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find episodes and other content on mortalityminded.com. If social media is your thing, I'm at mortalityminded on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Or if you want to kick it old school, email me through connect at mortalityminded.com. Let me know what you think of this episode and others by rating and or commenting on them. Your feedback is much appreciated and goes a long way in helping make the show better for everyone involved, you, the guests, and me alike. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, stay mortality-minded.